Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm Brandon Hubner, bringing you Episode 5, Meanwhile in Egypt. A few preliminaries, if you'll indulge me. Um, I've got several social media profiles set up for the podcast where I've been posting a This Day in Maritime History event each day, along with podcast news and other interesting maritime discoveries or news that crops up from time to time. It'd be great to have listeners connect with the podcast, and I'd love to get any listener feedback about things you'd like to see included in the show, topics that you'd like to see covered, even things that you don't like or would want to see improved. Basically, it would be great to hear from more listeners, in addition to those of you who have already reached out, and thank you to those people, especially Patrick Malloy, who emailed in with some encouraging words from his current work on an underwater archaeology team in Japan. Keep up the good work, Patrick. If you're interested in connecting with the podcast further, the relevant links can be found at the website MaritimeHistoryPodcast.com. On the website, you'll also find a link to our Patreon page, where you can donate to help cover the hosting costs and keep the history coming. There's also a link to make a one-time donation if you prefer to do it that method, but either one would mean a lot to me and would go a long way toward keeping this podcast on its feet. As you may have guessed from the episode title, we're now going to turn the focus of our discussion from the maritime exploits of Mesopotamia over to the land of the pharaohs, and as we do so, we're going to turn back the clock from where it stood when we finished our look at Mesopotamia. Almost everything that we'll look at in this episode happened during the Uruk period of the Mesopotamian history, a period that I've alluded to and briefly discussed in a few previous episodes. When we left Mesopotamia in episode 4, we left it at a point near the decline that ensued after Hammurabi's death. But as we enter Egypt, our discussion will begin at a time prior to the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt, a time before the dynastic divisions by which we organize our understanding of the ancient Egyptians. Even in the mention of an Upper and a Lower Egypt, the current running under the surface of Egyptian history is present, and, of course, that current is the Nile River, the lifeblood of Egyptian civilization for millennia. Some have called it a conduit, others have likened it to a highway, and perhaps the most famous description comes from Herodotus, where he describes the Nile as a gift-giver, bestowing the gift of life upon Egypt itself. Sometimes repeated focus on the same point makes that point trite, but in the case of Egypt and maritime history, the Nile really is the foundation that both made Egypt a great civilization and allowed it to be on the forefront of boat technology as it developed in the ancient world. The Nile is essentially a strip of oasis stretching for thousands of miles. It begins somewhere in the mountains of east-central Africa, and from there it flows north out of the mountains and into the desert. Scattered over the course of those several thousand miles before it branches out to drain into the Mediterranean, the Nile is punctuated by six major groups of cataracts, white water rapids, or shallow stretches that are mostly impassable by boat except during flood time. 
The first cataract at Aswan was the most significant of the six, and during ancient times it was a natural barrier between Egypt to its north and Nubia to its south. Now, that's not to say that it was categorically impassable, and pharaohs frequently pushed south into Nubia. Rather, the first cataract at Aswan was important because early on in Egyptian history, the kings fortified an island that they called Abu, an island that sat in the Nile just downstream of the first cataract and was perfectly located to serve as a choke point and transfer station for cargo being shipped on the Nile. This island and the first cataract were so important because north of Aswan, a ship could travel unchecked to the Mediterranean along the free-flowing highway of the Nile, reaching the river's mouth over 750 miles away. Traveling back upstream, while a bit more difficult, was relatively simple when compared to many other rivers around the globe. The whole of the journey back upstream was generally undertaken with the aid of Egypt's predominant northerly wind, a wind blowing from north to south. In the case of the Nile, this was perfect, since the Nile flows from south to north. Later on in this episode, we'll see how Egypt could well have been the first civilization to develop sail technology on a wide level, and it's likely that the complementary functions of the Nile's flow and the northerly wind created the perfect situation for the invention and adoption of the sail. Before we get into the specific examples that give us a window into pre-dynastic Egypt, I also want to mention the fact that Egypt wasn't purely limited to the north-south matrix of the Nile into the Mediterranean. While the Nile was integral to the rise of Egyptian civilization, and many of Egypt's important features were contained within the Nile Valley, Egypt also had communication with the Red Sea to the east via the wadis that cut through the Red Sea hills. The mountains were rich in mineral deposits, and there's a wealth of evidence that the ancient Egyptians mined in the eastern mountains far back into ancient history. We'll take a look at some rock carvings from this region that give us a glimpse at some of the oldest boat depictions on Earth, but it's important to keep in mind that Egypt did have a limited measure of contact east and into the Red Sea, although the extent of that contact is still unknown to us today. With that geography groundwork laid, I think it's also important to take a brief look at just how all-encompassing the Nile was in the mind of the ancient Egyptians. First off, almost all of the Egyptian creation myths had to do with the gods either being from the water or creating the earth from the water. In reality, too, the Nile's water gave life to the civilization, overflowing on an annual cycle and spreading the fertile soil that made crop growth possible along the oasis-like strip that cut through the desert. I was recently reading The Discoverers, a great book by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and former Librarian of Congress Daniel Borston. He makes the broad point that the Nile made crop growth possible, which led to an expanding civilization much like what we saw in our look at Mesopotamian growth, growth which in turn led to commerce that the Nile facilitated by being a freight way for transportation, not only of crops, but also of the raw materials and obelisks that eventually became symbols of Egyptian state power. 
This broad point is necessary, but Borston makes a second fascinating point, being that, quite possibly, the Nile was responsible for Egypt becoming one of the first unified large-scale civilizations. He attributes that unification to the fact that the Nile floods on an annual basis, a phenomenon that led to the Egyptians delineating time in a fashion almost precisely like that of our modern calendar. While other civilizations, such as those in Mesopotamia and Greece, measured time based on lunar cycles, creating disparate timekeeping systems that left fragmented city-states predominant, Egypt was knit together by the annual flooding of the Nile, a readily observable and actually essential occurrence that unified Egypt in their perception of time. Now, this unification and dependence on the Nile also led to a more authoritarian power structure than those early societies, but it also gave Egypt an early edge in the ancient world. Enough of that, anyways. Now down to the nitty-gritty examples that really bring life to these somewhat abstract concepts, and we'll start with some of the early depictions of boats from pre-dynastic Egypt. We're forced to rely on these depictions because almost no textual evidence from such an early period has been found, and even the textual evidence that has been found, and attached to the early dynasties, is still subject to debate and is not very descriptive for our purposes. As would be expected, and as we saw was the case in Mesopotamia, the earliest of the Egyptian water vessels were most likely papyrus reed floats and boats. There are numerous depictions of what seem to be papyrus boats on jars and clay vases that are generally dated to the pre-dynastic Gerzian culture, a material culture that is named after artifacts taken from a pre-dynastic cemetery in the town of Gerza. The large majority of these Gerzian boat depictions seem to follow the general depiction of what we would expect for a papyrus reed boat. A symmetrical shape would indicate the tied-off ends of the reed hull, and the lines drawn downward from the hull may represent paddles or oars. Old Kingdom linguistics also indicate that the earliest boat forms were likely papyrus boats, as the term for constructing a boat carried the concept of binding the boat, and this term continued even after they'd adopted wooden plank construction techniques. There is also the possibility that, even at this early stage, the Egyptians were using wood to build their boats, as some of the depictions are asymmetrical and conform more to the structure of the later wooden boats that have been found. The possibility that wooden boats were being built from the very beginning is made apparent by the reality, as we'll see later, that even the earliest of the pharaohs had highly developed wooden ships buried in their capital cities or in their graveyards. One important artifact seems to be dual proof both that pre-dynastic Egypt used wooden boats and was among the first to develop the sail. A beautiful jar dated to the Nakada II period of pre-dynastic Egypt depicts an elegantly shaped boat with a square sail set on a single pole mast near the front of the boat. The boat's asymmetrical shape seems to indicate that it was built of wood, as a reed boat of this shape with a mast pole in such a position would function poorly and may not even function at all. 
Maritime historian Lincoln Payne surmises that as pre-dynastic Egypt developed wooden boats, that they mimicked the form of their papyrus boats, at first because they were inexperienced with the material, but later because they consciously sought to imitate the original papyrus boat form. It's an interesting theory, and it's readily apparent that wooden ships had been highly developed and come into wide use by the time of Egypt's unification. Before we get there, let's take a quick look at the most prevalent and the most difficult to interpret boat depictions, the petroglyphs that are scattered throughout Upper Egypt. Although the boat depictions on the jars and vases give us a basic idea of pre-dynastic boats and are fairly well documented, there are actually more petroglyph boat depictions than any other pre-dynastic depiction. The problem is that the petroglyphs are less well documented, and even where there is documentation, dating the petroglyphs is especially difficult. The main informative contribution of the boat petroglyphs comes from their location, many of them in the wadis that cut through the eastern mountains leading to the Red Sea. While many of the wadi petroglyphs depict what we would expect to see in a rock carving of a papyrus boat, one of the most fascinating and possibly the most important petroglyphs was recently discovered in the Nile village of Nag el-Hamdulab, a village that sits roughly six kilometers north of Aswan. I say the site was discovered, but really it was rediscovered, since it was originally documented in the 1890s, but was again rediscovered in 2008 by archaeologists who went to great lengths to document the site and attempt preservation, as the site was vandalized on at least one occasion, which led to the petroglyph being severely defaced. The main tableau at Nag al-Hamdulab depicts five separate boats. Four of them are nearly identical in shape and size, though it's difficult to say whether they depict papyrus boats or wooden boats, and either type would have been possible based on the main feature of the petroglyph. That feature is the central figure who wears the white crown of Upper Egypt, an adornment that has caused some archaeologists to draw the conclusion that this figure is none other than Narmer, the first pharaoh of unified Egypt. Other indicators in the tableau further support that conclusion. For instance, the crowned figure is being fanned by what appears to be a servant, and the boats are adorned with what looks to be falcon and bull insignias, Many of the pre-dynastic boat depictions we discussed previously were also adorned with one of dozens of standards. Because the falcon and bull insignias became associated with royalty as the dynastic period progressed, it's logical to draw the conclusion that the falcon symbol and the white crown point to the central figure as being the first pharaoh. In addition, a hieroglyphic symbol in the tableau labels the scene as a nautical following, quite possibly a reference to the following of Horus, an event that consisted of the king and his royal court making journey along the Nile River Valley, most likely as a tax collection slash PR tour to cement his newly won authority over all of Egypt. As fascinating as the petroglyph mural at Nag el-Hamdulab is, and as significant as its possible interpretation may be, there are two other pre-dynastic depictions that I want to mention quickly before we cross over into the Old Kingdom period. 
The first artifact is an ivory knife handle that was discovered in Gebel el Arak and is currently kept at the Louvre. The second is a marvelous painting on the brick walls of a Gerzian period tomb in Hierakonpolis, the religious and political capital of Upper Egypt as the dynastic period began. I mention these two items in conjunction because each contains a boat type similar to the wooden sailboat on the Nakata 2 jar that I mentioned earlier, the dark-colored sleek boats with one high vertical end. The boats on the Gebel el Arak knife handle actually have two symmetrical high ends, a trait that's generally associated with Mesopotamian boats from the same period. The Hierakonpolis tomb painting depicts a flotilla of six boats, and while five of them are readily identified with the common Egyptian papyrus reed boat of pre-dynastic times, the sixth boat, called the Black Boat, is quite unique. It has one high vertical end and an oar near the front, unique traits that have led some scholars to call it a foreign boat. At one point, the knife handle and the tomb painting were interpreted together as depicting the same event, a late pre-dynastic invasion of people from the east. The foreign invaders were once thought to be Mesopotamian in origin, and while that theory has been dismissed over time, it's still possible that the foreign boats actually depict Mesopotamian vessels. The theory that resonates most with me is that even in pre-dynastic Egypt, both Egypt and Mesopotamia had trade contacts with people in the Levant. Egyptian inscriptions bearing the name of Narmer have been discovered in the Levant, and it's feasible that both cultures had interactions there, and that the distinctive design of Mesopotamian boats made its way to Egypt, not via invasion, but rather by Egyptian artists using the design on depictions that eventually found their way down the Nile into Upper Egypt. This interpretation seems more likely than the invasion theory, because very few physical artifacts related to Mesopotamia have been found in Upper Egypt, the place that was supposedly invaded, and those that have been found could easily have made their way there via trade exchanges. So, while claims of Mesopotamian invasion seem dubious, Egypt certainly had trade connections with the Levant, and even out into the Red Sea. They also seem to have had maritime connections south into Nubia, despite the cataract at Aswan. A beautiful incense burner, unearthed at the royal tomb in the Nubian town of Kustul, is unquestionably carved in a Nubian carving style, but it depicts imagery that's readily associated with Egyptian royalty. The carved image encircling the incense burner depicts what seems to be a royal boat procession, with a seated figure again wearing the white crown of Upper Egypt in the central boat. The forwardmost boat contains a prisoner, and the boat appears to contain a square sail set on a single mast, similar to the design of the Nakodatu jar we discussed earlier. Because the boats are en route to a palace-like structure, the incense burner has been interpreted as depicting a royal procession, possibly again the following of Horus. Alright, that's as much as we'll consider when it comes to the pre-dynastic period. There's so much more that could be said and speculated about, 
I mean, there are entire books dedicated to pre-dynastic boats in Egypt. But I think we've hit the highlights that give us a good base from which to transition into the Old Kingdom, early dynastic period. As we've seen, the first named pharaoh, and the one responsible for unifying Upper and Lower Egypt, was Narmer, sometimes called Menes. I'll try not to get too sidetracked by the political history of Egypt, and if you're interested in the subject, I'd recommend Toby Wilkinson's Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt as a concise glimpse at the high points of Egyptian history. We've already seen how Narmer's name has been found in the Levant, and how other evidence seems to indicate that he also extended his reach south into Nubia. Those facts being the case, it's fairly safe to assume that by the start of the dynastic period, Egypt had already developed wooden boats to a usable degree. Nothing confirms that theory more than a discovery that was made in the ancient Egyptian city of Abydos. Abydos is seen as having been the Giza of the early dynasties. It was the focus of technological innovation and religious development, Early iterations of pyramid-like burial structures have been found there, and the royal necropolis at Abydos was the resting place of the first known pharaohs. The maritime-relevant discovery at Abydos technically came from the royal necropolis, called Um el-Ka'ab, which is located about a mile outside the ancient city itself. With its imposing temples and wealth of artifacts, Abydos has been the focus of excavation and archaeological work since the inception of modern Egyptology. In 1988, however, Australian Egyptologist Dr. David O'Connor was leading a team at Abydos when they discovered a burial mound, something he viewed as being a proto-pyramid. During the same season, they discovered lines of mud brick buried beneath the sand, and although they initially assumed that the brick structure was the corner of a yet undiscovered enclosure, when they returned to uncover the remaining portion three years later, they made what O'Connor called a startling and significant discovery. As digging progressed, the team realized that they were unearthing a series of oddly shaped walls, each one running in the same direction, perpendicular to where the Nile flowed seven miles to the west. Soon, however, the team realized that these walls were something else altogether. In reality, the walls turned out to be boat graves, 12 of them discovered in 1991 alone, and several more later on. The archaeology team wasn't far off in their original assessment, though, because the boats themselves were each enclosed within a brick casing, and although the brick enclosures were low-lying, once they were uncovered, their boat-like shape was unmistakable. Further examination revealed facts that give us a picture of what the fleet would have looked like several thousand years ago after it was first built. Each grave had originally been coated in mud plaster and painted white, so an Egyptian at Abydos would likely have seen a fleet of huge boat-shaped enclosures sitting out in the desert, reflecting the bright desert sun. Small boulders placed in similar locations near the prow or stern of many of the boats seems to indicate a ceremonial mooring of the boats to the desert floor. 
The whitewashed brick enclosures have been said to look like a ghostly fleet anchored in the Egyptian desert, but the boats contained within the enclosures actually give us an amazing window into just how advanced Egyptian boat building had become by the time of the First Dynasty. Following the original discovery in 1991, another ten years passed before the team could arrange the approvals and necessary preservation needed to make excavation of a boat grave feasible. In 2000, Dr. O'Connor led an excavation that confirmed the hopes they'd harbored throughout the 90s. Each boat grave contained a wooden planked boat that had conformed to what the brick enclosures indicated. From the outside, the graves were enormous, their average length measuring in at almost 90 feet, despite their narrow widths, with the widest boat measuring about 10 feet. The most important information, though, came from the wood itself, and the graves that had not been worn down preserved their contents in an amazing fashion. This preservation was accomplished by the way in which the boats were basically sealed in their graves. A narrow trench was cut in the sand, and the boat's wooden hull then nestled down into the sand. The brick enclosure was then built up around the boat, with the inside edge built to conform to the shape of the hull. Several of the boats had the inside of their hulls filled in with mud brick, and all of the boat graves were then sealed with mud plaster and painted white. The wood used to build the boats seems to have been locally sourced, in contrast to the Lebanon cedar wood that came to be used later in Egyptian history. The construction of the boats was accomplished using thick wooden planks that were lashed together by rope fed through mortises. The seams between the planks were filled with bundles of reeds, and more reeds carpeted the floors of each boat. These early boats were not built with internal frames, and some of the boats appear twisted or lopsided, which is the common fate suffered by vessels without an internal structure to support them. Pigmentation on the boats seems to show that several of them were painted white, while at least one of them was painted yellow. The boats have been dated to the first half of the First Dynasty, and although precision is difficult, it's certain that they were buried along with one of Egypt's earliest pharaohs. I'll conclude our look at the earliest maritime evidence from Egypt with a revealing quote from Dr. O'Connor in which he summarized the significance of the Abydos boats. He said, Ancient Egypt is a riverine civilization, yet before these boats were discovered, we knew very little, beyond representations on ancient pots, about ancient Egyptian boats earlier than the reign of Khufu, one of the greatest fourth dynasty pharaohs. These boats, the Abydos boats, provide us with a window into better understanding Egypt at the dawn of its extraordinarily long-lived civilization. Moreover, recent excavations have confirmed our original guess. These boat graves contain actual and viable boats intended for a king's use in the afterlife. They are, in meaning and function, the direct ancestors of the famous boat recovered at Khufu's Great Pyramid at Giza, and predate Khufu's boat by perhaps as much as 300 years. It's also worth mentioning that other early boat graves have been discovered at Helwan and Saqqara, two sites connected to the ancient capital at Memphis.
And with that, our look at the pre-dynastic Egyptian maritime evidence comes to a close. Thanks so much for listening, and again, please take a minute to stop by the website to leave some feedback or see how you can support the continued production of the podcast. It may also interest you to know that for each of the relevant episodes, I've tried to include pictures of the various artifacts that we discuss to give you a visual look at just how beautiful these things are. I hope you'll join us for episode 6, when I plan to spend most of our time and focus on the most beautiful and important maritime discovery from Egypt's Old Kingdom, but possibly from the entire ancient world altogether, the solar ship of Khufu, discovered at Giza. It looks to be a fascinating topic, and I look forward to sharing it with you next time. Until then, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.